Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Sam Coe, owner of Reset Ketamine. We discussed his insights into consciousness while working with ketamine, and his East Meets West approach to healing. This is also the first episode that is also published on my other podcast, The Stoned Ape Reports, which covers healing with psychedelic medicines. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. Sam Coe. Well, Dr. Coe, thank you so much for joining me here on The Consciousness Podcast. Um, you and I had a great conversation at a psychedelic conference about a year and a half ago. Um, and actually, we recorded a podcast episode, and then I accidentally deleted it. So, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm truly grateful for you to come back here and, and do this again, because I know it's hard to try to re-energize th- that magic. So, um, first of all, I'm really grateful for you coming back here and doing this. So, so welcome and thank you. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I'm honored to be back on the podcast and um, have it actually available to the public. And I trust that everything you know happens for a reason. So I'm honored to be here and thank you for the opportunity. All right. Awesome. Likewise, likewise. So this is also going to be a first crossover podcast um, that's going to appear both here on the Consciousness Podcast and on my other podcast, The Stone Dave Reports, which is a podcast about the healing powers of psychedelic medicines. Um, because ketamine, which is what we're here to talk about, has some tremendous benefits, obviously, for mental health, including helping those, you know, with suicidal thoughts, suicide, suicidality, which is obviously close to my heart, you know, after having lost my son to suicide. And I think you bring a really unique perspective to consciousness through your work, you know, at your practice. So let's just jump in with that. And, and maybe we can start off and tell us a little bit about your practice um, Reset Ketamine. Tell us what you do and, and what you guys are all about. So Reset Ketamine was started in 2018. It was uh, April. So we've been open for about two and a half years. And we're really focused on using uh, ketamine as a rapid transformational medication for treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, anxiety, OCD, and neuropathic pain. Um, I'm really focused on using a holistic approach to ketamine treatments. Um, so this is looking at, you know, not, not only the biology, but, you know, the psychology, the sociology, as well as the spirituality of a patient. Um, so we're kind of blending this biopsychosocial spiritual model combined with uh, kind of an Eastern and Western approach. And as well as this modern allopathic medical approach of, you know, monitoring patients' vital signs like blood pressure, heart rate, pulse oximetry, respiratory rate, et cetera. Um, So, yeah, it's a nice blend of East and Mm -hmm. West and kind of a holistic approach for ketamine. Awesome. And like I mentioned there in the intro, um, ketamine is used to treat people with suicidal ideation and prevent suicide. Is Is that correct? And have you had good results with that? Yeah, so it's really interesting because there are research studies that show that ketamine can be rapidly effective for patients with suicidal ideation um, and as a potential medication to prevent suicide. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that ketamine is not FDA approved for this indication. So there is generic racemic ketamine, which was, um, you know, 
FDA approved in 1970 for use in the operating room and the emergency room. And uh, as far as for mood disorders and suicidal ideations and suicidal thoughts, it's not FDA approved. So although it has been used clinically and in the research setting, it's not the standard of care for someone with suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation. Okay. That makes sense. So it's kind of, is that what you call off-label? Yeah. So that's the off-label use of ketamine. Um, there are more research studies that are coming out, Stuart, that are saying, hey, this can be you know, rapidly beneficial, um, but it's unfortunately not FDA approved for this indication. And so it's off-label. But I do want to mention that there is another medicine that uh, Johnson & Johnson recently um, you know, patented and is FDA approved. And that's S-ketamine, which is uh, the brand name is called Spravato. So that one actually just recently did get FDA approval for treatment resistant depression and suicide, suicidal uh, thoughts. Uh, what's interesting about racemic ketamine is that racemic ketamine contains both S-ketamine and R-ketamine. So in a way, someone could argue, hey, if S-ketamine nasal spray is FDA approved, then shouldn't the racemic uh, generic ketamine also be FDA approved as well. Yeah. Is somebody out there making that argument? Um, I think the, the ketamine clinics, you know, the American society of ketamine physicians, um, yeah, they're making that argument, but the only problem is that to get FDA approval, one needs to go through the various phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four studies. And that takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. And someone uh, in particular, a pharmaceutical company is not going to have a vested interest to um, you know, place a lot of money into something that's generic and readily available. So that's the biggest challenge with generic ketamine today. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Now, it's uh, some of my questions to you came from attending your, your um, presentation at that conference. A lot, of, a lot of amazing things that you shared and obviously um, really part, sparked my curiosity. And one of the things I think you said was that um, ketamine infusion treatment can produce a dissociative experience known as a, quote, ketamine-induced non-ordinary state of consciousness. Um, so first of all, did I get that right? And if so, can you explain to us what that, what that is and what that means? Yeah, so um, ketamine-induced non-ordinary state of consciousness, NOSE. Um, ketamine is a dissociative agent, so it's going to disconnect the mind from the body. And this is incredibly useful when we're doing these anesthetic procedures um, in the operating room and the emergency room, because you know if we're going to put someone's you know bones back together or reduce. Uh, shoulder joint that's been dislocated. It's very painful. So you want that person's mind to be elsewhere. Um, so they're not really feeling this pain during the procedure. So mm. the question is, well, what is going on? Well, where is the mind going? And there was a doctor, his name is uh, Dr. Eli Cope. And he did some research on this and he described four types of experiences or states that someone can have during a ketamine experience. And uh, the four stages, number one is the empathogenic experience. So this is where someone has an awareness of their body. Uh, it's very comfortable. It's relaxing. Their ego defenses are reduced. Um, they're feeling compassion and warmth, love and peace, kind of euphoria, um, and maybe some nonspecific visual effects. Uh, the level two is the out-of-body experience where there's actually a complete separation 
from one's body, the ego defenses are you know, significantly diminished. Uh, they may feel like they're visiting mythological realms of consciousness. They may have encounters with non-terrestrial beings. They might have some intense emotional visions, like seeing deceased relatives or spirits. Uh, they may think of like uh, vivid dreams of the past and future. Uh, the third one is the near-death experience where, you know, it's a complete departure from one's body. You might have uh, loss of identity. It might feel like, you know, someone is experiencing an actual physical and psychological mind death. Um, they may experience a single point of consciousness that's simply aware of itself, or they might relive their own life thinking about their actions and how that's affected others and kind of a moral judgment of the self. And then the final non-ordinary state of consciousness one could have is kind of this ego dissolving transcendental experience where there's this uh, ecstatic state of dissolution of boundary between the self, the external reality, where you have complete, complete dissolution of uh, one's body and self transcending normal mass time, space continuum, a feeling of uh, collective consciousness and unity with nature, universe, God, and a real sense of sacredness. So those are <clears throat> the four states of, uh, not an ordinary consciousness that one can have with the ketamine. And it seems like the, the higher the dose of the ketamine, the more likely they are to have, you know, the, um, this kind of level four experience of ego dissolving transcendental experience. Interesting. And so I, my next question was really about near death experiences. If, if you and your patients had, I mean, I guess if your patients had experienced an NDE, you know, if they provide you any feedback or, if you'd seen that, but I guess I'm also curious about these other three non-ordinary states of consciousness. So in addition to NDE, you know, what have they reported back to you on these things? Um, so yeah, well, our patients have definitely had NDE experiences and again, it depends upon the dose. So, you know, when I start a patient on their infusion, it's usually the lowest dose, which is typically about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. And then with each infusion, we will, gently titrate the dose upwards depending upon the patient. So at that first dose, they just feel really relaxed and calm um, and really peaceful and tranquil. And, you know, someone described it as, you know, felt like I was getting a thousand massages at once. So it's a really calm environment. Um, but then the higher the dose, the uh, more likely the patient is, is to have an NDE, a near-death experience. And I can recall... Uh, one patient I was thinking about where we did a pretty high dose on him. And after the infusion, he came out and he, his first words were, whoa, Dr. Ko, I died. And he was like, that was the biggest fear I've ever had in my life. And I died and I was okay with it. And I accepted. And of course, just to note that even though he felt like he was dying uh, physiologically, because we measure their blood pressure and oxygen level, et cetera, the vital signs, everything was normal on my end when I was seeing his uh, body as biologically, his reaction. But for him, his experience was that he faced death and he was able to overcome it. He was able to accept it. And as a result, he just had a, a sense of peace that has kind of persisted, you know, with him and stayed with him for quite some time. Um, the other interesting thing, Stuart, was there was a study by Dr. Martial was published last year, uh, 2019, where they looked at comparing um, real NDEs, real near-death experiences 
and the stories that people had uh, written about them, about these experiences. So these were patients who were involved in like heart attacks, uh, car accidents, strokes, um, et cetera, other things that caused them to have NDEs. And they compared those reports with um, 15,000 other reports of patients using various substances like ketamine and DMT and LSD, et cetera. And they plugged in all the stories from those two groups, one group having real NDEs, the other group having uh, these experiences with um, drugs. And out of all of the substances, they found that uh, ketamine experience was most similar as far as the narrative and the experience to the actual near-death experience. Well, it's interesting because I, I would have thought it would have come out DMT because you actually hear about DMT creating a kind of a near-death experience type of experience. So it's really mm -hmm. interesting that actually ketamine is what gets you there. Yeah, so I think ketamine was number one and I believe DMT was number two as far as the similarity. With these treatments, can put you into these altered states and you mentioned, I think, that they allow one to access the, quote, unconscious part of the mind, you know, memories, emotions, stories. So what do you think is going on there, you know, which allows this experience to occur um, under the influence of, of ketamine? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, and I was thinking about this, about the unconscious and the conscious mind. And, you know, the first thought that comes up is the... You know, this was Freud's idea, and it was a model proposing, you know, how the mind is. Uh, but physiologically, I'm not sure if, hey, you know, this portion of the brain is where the unconscious lies, and this is where the unconscious lies. So, assuming the metaphor and uh, physiologically that the unconscious mind doesn't reside in a certain portion of the brain, um, what I think ketamine does is it seems to calm down that conscious part of the mind that kind of um, background noise, that commentator, and reduces the volume of that. And then it allows one to see what's really going on. So extending this metaphor of uh, an iceberg. So when Freud first talked about the unconscious and the unconscious mind, he described an iceberg and how when you look out into the ocean, you'll see the tip of the iceberg at the very top, but underneath you'll see this vast, uh, remaining portion of the iceberg, which is, you know, all underwater. And so he says that the conscious mind is just this tip of the iceberg that we see, whereas the unconscious mind is what's underneath. And so if I think about that metaphor, uh, what I make up is that ketamine seems to allow that water that is between the upper portion of the iceberg and what's underneath to calm down. And so if you look at a, uh, you know, the ocean and it's choppy and, you know, that's churning and there's water and all the, um, you know, bubbles coming up, you're not going to be able to see underneath. However, if that water remains really calm and it's smooth and it stays really peaceful, then you're going to be able to see deeper down into the water. And so it's possible that ketamine by calming the surface of the ocean will allow one to see what's going on underneath and to look actually down deeper at that iceberg. Interesting. And do you think that that is the calming of the water? Is that the default mode network? I mean, cause I know you mentioned that ketamine blocks the, the DMN, but do you think that's what you're describing here? Yeah. So the DMN is um, the default mode network, which is like the structure um, of 
various structures of the brain that seem to become activated when we're, you know, doing non-specific things like just daydreaming or, you know, uh, imagining uh, when we're not focused on a task. And so the default mode network uh, has also been correlated that the higher levels of the DMN, there's, you know, more rumination going on, more stories that are related to the, you know, kind of stories that don't support us like, hey, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. And ketamine is known to decrease activity and connectivity of the default mode network. So uh, yeah, physiologically or from a functional MRI perspective, turning down the default mode network uh, via the ketamine can also increase uh, access to what's going on underneath, you know, access portions of the brain that necessarily aren't activated when we're awake. And that's how somebody can experience a different state of consciousness is when that default mode network is kind of quieted down, then they kind of enter into that, that altered state. Yeah. And what's interesting is it can um, happen in, in other ways too. So like deep meditators, uh, they find that the default mode network can become quieted down when you're in a deep meditation as well. Um, and what's interesting about the, in addition to the default mode network is the changes that are happening in patients, uh, EEGs. So electroencephalograms and, you know, ketamine seems to create the same type of EEGs that are seen in these meditators who've been practicing for 10 or 20 years when they enter a meditative state, they'll enter into a certain brain, brainwave state physiology, and ketamine seems to mimic that similar type of brainwave state. So by doing that, it seems like they're just entering a kind of a calmer, more zen, more meditative state of mind. Wow. And is that, is that, because uh, I meditate, and I, I think part of what I'm thinking before and after, and sometimes unfortunately during, is uh, settling down the ego you know, right. It's kind of like, shut up, ego, you know, leave me alone. And is that, is the default mode network tied to the ego and whether or not it is during a ketamine treatment, is it, do you think it's kind of the ego is what's being quieted down to allow that meditation like state that shows up on an EEG? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, in Michael Pollan's book, he talks about how the default mode network might be where the ego resides. And yeah, so if you're, you know, turning down the volume of the ego and, you know, egocentric focused on me, 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 and there's this other component that rises up, um, which might be more focused on others, might more focused on, you know, universal uh, consciousness. And when we're less focused on ourselves, uh, it may allow us to focus more on, you know, other things beyond ourselves. Yeah, interesting. And so how, how does this relate specifically, in your opinion, to one's, you know, consciousness? And I guess, kind of combine it with another question is, in your work with your patients, and, and the work you do with, with ketamine and the infusion treatments, what have you kind of learned about what, what human consciousness is, and how it works? And What's your general feeling about it? Yeah. So, you know, human consciousness is really, it's, it's very challenging to, you know, to really fully know and understand. I think there was an idea that, you know, studying human consciousness is an eye is like a eyeball trying to look at itself. 
So first off, that's the caveat I want to throw out there that uh, knowing and studying human consciousness is challenging and we may never fully understand it. Um, but what I've come to learn more about human, <clears throat> excuse me, what I've come to learn more about human consciousness is this, uh, it's incredibly powerful. Um, there's definitely, in my opinion, something that goes beyond our individual consciousness and um, I do get a sense of feeling of universal consciousness. And that's one of the themes that actually comes up frequently is our patients will come out of the treatments and they will state, you know, hey, I have this feeling or I had this sensation that I'm really connected to everyone. You know, I was thinking about my uh, relatives and my friends and just this really uh, sense of interconnectedness with each other. And I think there's something really powerful uh, about that, about how ketamine can create these feelings of interconnectedness. And um, yeah, it also makes me think about Carl Jung, who mentioned that, you know, when we dream, we actually enter a state of uh, accessing the universal consciousness. So maybe there's something going on when someone is dreaming as well as when they're receiving a ketamine infusion, where we're all just kind of returning to kind of this core consciousness or this universal consciousness. And so when you and I talked before, <clears throat> and I think you're, I think you're bringing that up now, it seemed like you had this notion that, um, you know, you have a physical brain and there's stuff going on in the brain, the default mode network and neurons and other networks and schema. And then you have a consciousness, which may be part of the brain and it may be outside of the brain. And then you bring in another layer of spiritual, spiritualness, spirituality, the Eastern kind of aspect to it. And then this universal consciousness. So is that kind of the, the architecture that you see this is there's the, the physical, the mind consciousness, the spiritual part, and then universal or, or how does that model line up for you? Yeah. So I was trained um, under a model called the biopsychosocial model of medicine, which was founded in university of Rochester. And, you know, that's the biology of disease. Um, then you have to look at how that affects the psychology of a patient. And then, you know, if you think about a disease, you have to think about, Hey, you know, what are the social factors and implications of that disease. Uh, but then the fourth component is that spiritual component. And I think I really got that from my training uh, when I was at Loma Linda University, where it's a religious institution. And I remember seeing one of the attending physicians after a surgery pray for one of his patients. And he said, Hey, may I pray for you? And just seeing that component of, Hey, in addition to, you know, treating someone's bones and, you know, on the biological cellular level, we can make an impact on the spiritual level. Um, and by spiritual, I mean, anything that's not measurable, something that's beyond the physical, uh, something that cannot be seen or heard uh, necessarily. And I think, um, yeah, I think when we consider a human being, we have to definitely include that spiritual component and, you know, there's this quote by a French philosopher and a Jesuit priest, which I love. And he says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Wow. And that, and I've heard that before. I've heard the, the notion that, you know, that there's a larger consciousness, obviously, and that we are kind of um, dissociative aspects of that 
greater consciousness. Is, is that kind of what you're saying is there's a, the universal consciousness out there and we are basically like um, an entity formed from that, our consciousness we experience that comes from that? Yeah, I think now that you mention it, I'm, I think we talked about this um, on our last conversation and I had this idea or hypothesis of how there was like a giant sphere of consciousness, maybe like the sun, for example, and how from that giant sphere of consciousness, like little sparks of consciousness are coming out from it. And each, you know, being is a part of that you know, comes from that spark of consciousness or comes from that giant solar, you know, sun of consciousness. And we're all just little sparks of it. And, you know, it's always within us and uh, we're always connected to it, in my opinion. Yeah. So what do you think about um, the survival of consciousness after death then? Have you given that any thought? What do you think? What do you think happens after we die, after our brains turn off? (laughs) Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but what I, I loved, um, I believe it was Keanu Reeves and someone asked him the same question and loved his response. And I think I'll share it with you as well. He said, I don't know what happens, but what I do know for sure is that when we die, the people who love us, who loved us and who was uh, a part of our lives will miss us tremendously. Mm. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, okay, Dr. Kill, what, what else do you have on your mind in terms of, of consciousness, of ketamine, um, anything, any other plant medicines about your practice? I mean, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? Yeah, um, I would say ketamine is an amazing tool and medicine, uh, but it's simply one tool. It's not a panacea. So um, I think people have to recognize that you know, we have to use it responsibly and that it's not actually for everyone. And um, to get a consultation with a ketamine specialist, uh, they can go check out www.askp.org. Uh, there's a directory for, for a listing of ketamine clinics nationwide and see if it's a good fit for them. Um, yeah, so just be aware that, you know, it's not for everyone. It's not a panacea. And, you know, to use it responsibly. Uh, I think in general for other plant medicines, I think there needs to be more research, more funding. Um, I'm a big believer in evidence-based medicine. So the more data we have, uh, the more blinded, randomized controlled trials, looking at the effectiveness of these various medications, um, the more we can, you know, use it and leverage it. And I think the science behind it, uh, the more science, the more data we have, uh, the better it can be. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And your, your practice is resetketamine.com. Yeah. So yeah, we're in Palm Springs and Southern California and we're resetketamine.com. People can find us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, et cetera, and they can check out our website. Okay. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ko, uh, truly grateful that you, you came back after that fiasco last time. And the information you shared is just uh, really insightful and I love your, your angle on it. And, your opinions on this. So truly grateful to have you back and and share all this with us. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Stuart. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. 
Thank you for listening.